2: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, the second impeachment of former President Donald Trump is now headed for the history books, and President Biden steps up efforts on securing vaccines and getting America's schools reopened. Last week, America relived and learned some terrifying new details about the January 6th attack on the Capitol. But in the end, the result of the attempt to convict former President Trump was predictable and political. THERE WERE SOME PLOT TWISTS, LIKE MINORITY LEADER MITCH McCONNELL'S CONDEMNATION OF MR. TRUMP IMMEDIATELY AFTER HE VOTED TO ACQUIT HIM.
3: FOR A DISGRACEFUL, DISGRACEFUL DERELICTION OF DUTY.
2: LEADER MCCONNELL'S DEFENSE FOR HIS VOTE? THE SENATE WAS NOT THE RIGHT COURT FOR CONVICTION.
3: WE HAVE A CRIMINAL JUSTICE SYSTEM IN THIS COUNTRY. WE HAVE CIVIL LITIGATION. And former presidents are not immune from being accountable by either one.
2: Asked about censuring to punish the former president, instead, Speaker Pelosi called it a cowardly way out for Republican senators. We censure people for using stationery for the wrong purpose. We don't censure people for inciting insurrection that kills people in the Capitol. Democrats warn that without accountability, violence like that seen on January 6th could happen again.
4: I fear, like many of you do, that the violence we saw on that terrible day may be just the beginning.
2: We'll talk with one of the prosecutors, Colorado Congressman Jonah Goose. Plus, an exclusive conversation with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He too weighed in on the Senate verdict.
5: After all the toings and froings and all the kerfuffle, American democracy is strong.
2: We'll also talk to the head of the Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, about President Biden's back-to-school plan and those new virus variants. The CEO of Rite Aid Drugstores, Hayward Donegan, will be with us to tell us how her company plans to help with getting Americans vaccinated. Plus, we'll check in with Dr. Scott Gottlieb. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. The headlines this morning are similar to what they were almost exactly a day, a week and a year ago after being acquitted in the foreign interference impeachment case. Now, former President Donald Trump has been acquitted again, this time for incitement of insurrection following the events of January 6th. But this time, seven Republican senators broke with their party. That was still 10 votes short of conviction. We want to begin this morning with one of the impeachment managers, Colorado Democratic Congressman Joe Neguse. He's in Washington. Good morning, Congressman.
4: Good morning, Margaret. Good to be with you.
2: Uh, You closed your argument yesterday uh, by saying extremist groups may be emboldened and the violence on the 6th may just be the beginning. Are you saying Republicans are complicit in that? And if so, how do you work across the aisle with them now?
4: Well, look. What I was saying, Margaret, and is very heartfelt on uh, my behalf and on behalf of all the managers, is a, r- a real fear that I think many Americans have, uh, after witnessing the terrible violence that happened on January sixth and the insurrection that took place on our nation's account, a uh, nation's capital. That uh, without accountability, uh, that many of these groups could very well become more emboldened and uh, and perhaps uh, engage in, in more violence. Uh, I had hoped. more senators uh, would ultimately honor their oath uh, by uh, convicting the president. But make no mistake, I mean, the big difference between this year and uh, the the headline that you referenced uh, last year is just how historic this vote was. It was the most bipartisan impeachment vote in the history of our republic. 57 senators, including seven Republicans that you mentioned, chose country over party, looked at our facts objectively that we presented uh, to them, considered the evidence, and reached the same conclusion we did, which was that the president incited insurrection. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. I want to salute and commend those seven Republicans, people like Ben Sass and Mitt Romney, uh, at really um, profile and courage, in my view, in terms of the vote that they took.
2: Why did you back off the request for witnesses?
4: That's a fair question. I don't know that I would uh, characterize it that way. Uh, look, I know a lot of folks Well, you are, asked are for them,
2: the senator said yes, and then the House managers said they didn't require them. That's backing off.
4: Sure. Well, no, so here's what I would say. I'm happy to answer the question. So uh, lead manager Raskin touched on this yesterday. He proceeded with a request for one witness, uh, not multiple witnesses. The request was for that video testimony, a deposition testimony, which is how – Uh, that's been done in prior impeachments, uh, for example, during the Clinton impeachment in 1999, of Congresswoman uh, Herrera Butler, given what we had learned about uh, her uh, statements uh, just the night before and the full extent of her remarks, uh, rather the conversation she had with uh, minority leader McCarthy uh, that he had with President Trump. And clearly that conversation went directly to the president's state of mind and, and in our view and in the view of clearly 57 senators supported our theory of the case. Uh, So we proceeded, uh, and Lead Manager Raskin, rather, proceeded with that request. It became very clear to us that President's counsel uh, was willing to stipulate to allow that statement to come into evidence and be considered by the Senate. And that was an important stipulation. Ultimately, uh, Lead Manager Raskin read out that statement both to the United States Senate and to the broad American public. But I'll just also say, uh, Margaret, look, I I think it's pretty clear, and Lead Manager Raskin touched on this, uh, whether it was five more witnesses or 5,000 witnesses, it is very clear that the senators who voted to acquit on a technicality, which was the jurisdictional argument that we had successfully uh, defended early in the trial and actually uh, had convinced a majority of the Senate, including Republicans, uh, that the Senate did have presidential jurisdiction to move forward. It would not have made a difference to those senators. And you heard that uh, from Mitch McConnell himself, who conceded mm-hmm. that The president was morally responsible for provoking the events of January 6th.
2: Well, there do seem to have been some key items that came up at the last minute or were, frankly, you know, overlooked until the last minute. You mentioned uh, Congresswoman Herrera Butler's comments, but she said she first made those public back in January. I also want to play for you these comments from Republican leader McCarthy that were on CBS coverage during the siege.
6: I'm giving you the opportunity right now that your precious and beloved United States Capitol and our democracy is witnessing this. Call the spade a spade.
4: I was very clear with the president when I called him. This has to stop and he's got to go to the American public and tell them to stop this. This is not who we are. This is not who his supporters are. This is more than politics. This is the foundation of this nation. This is the democracy that we are supposed to be the torch for the rest of the world. This is not the view we should see and nobody should encourage it and nobody should be a part of it.
2: That's the Republican leader saying on live television he personally asked the president multiple times to call off his mob. Why leave key moments like that on the table?
4: I, I disagree with the premise of that that question, Margaret. That Yes, that statement that you just mentioned, certainly we're aware of. I think, and again, I defer to lead manager Raskin on this entry point, but the full extent of the conversation that uh, Leader McCarthy had with the president is what uh, we and the country learned about uh, just in the last 48 hours. The president's response to Leader McCarthy that those uh, rioters, those insurrectionists, cared more about the election results than he did. Uh, that was New information, and so it was important for the Senate to consider that. But again, but wouldn't you wanted to have the-
2: asked Senate- McCarthy your, yourself these questions? I mean, there, are, and as I'm sure you've seen, reports and comments from Democratic senators like Chris Coons that you know this this just would have taken too long if the stakes were as high as you're saying. Why not hear from these witnesses?
4: I I'd say a couple of things first it was very clear, uh, and again, I defer this to Leader Manager Raskin, but my understanding uh, that witnesses that were not friendly to the prosecution uh, were not going to comply voluntarily, which meant uh, that we would be litigating subpoenas for months and potentially years. And I know you know this, Margaret, you covered this extensively during the first impeachment. We are still litigating the subpoena for Don McGahn that the Judiciary Committee issued two years ago. So look, at the end of the day, Leader McConnell himself yesterday acknowledged the president's disgraceful dereliction of duty. It Did you is very, think and then nonetheless.
2: You, nonetheless look, you looked, quick. you, very quickly though, you looked right at Leader McConnell in part of your remarks. Did you ever think you were going to persuade him to convict?
4: I was hopeful. Um, you know, I, I look, I, I care a great deal about this country as a son of immigrants and, and someone who's you know, been given so many freedoms and opportunities here in the United States. Um, I, I was hopeful that every Senator would ultimately vote to do the right thing. and uh, i'm I'm grateful that seven yeah. of them on the Republican side did that. Um, okay. Obviously, history will be judge the rest.
2: Congressman, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. This morning, a special interview with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He, like President Biden, is struggling with the pandemic. The UK death rate by percentage of population has now surpassed the US rate and is one of the highest in the world. Good morning to you, Mr. Prime Minister. Good morning. Uh, Thank you for joining us. I I wanted to ask you a little bit of your reflection on what just happened overnight. Uh, You strongly condemned the attack on the U.S. Capitol and said it was completely wrong for then-President Trump to have consistently cast doubt on the outcome of a free election. In terms of America's global standing, what signal did his acquittal make?
5: I think the clear message that we get from the proceedings in America is that, after all the toings and froings and all the kerfuffle, American democracy is strong, and uh, the American Constitution is strong and, and robust, and uh, we're delighted now, I'm very delighted to have a, a good relationship with uh, the White House, which is uh, an important part of any UK uh, prime minister's mission, and I've had some good conversations already with, uh, with President Biden, uh, fantastic conversations about the way he sees things, and you know, Margaret, there's been some important uh, uh, developments in the, the way UK-US thinking has been coming together in the last uh, few weeks, particularly on uh, issues like climate change, on NATO, on uh, Iran, uh, but above all on the ways that uh, the, the US and the UK are going to work together to deal with the environmental challenge that faces our, our planet. And there, I think, some of the stuff we're now hearing from the new American administration, from the new White House, is incredibly encouraging. And we want to work uh, with the, with the president on that,
2: and I understand you will be hosting President Biden for his first foreign ministers uh, foreign meeting on the 19th. Although it'll be virtual because of COVID, um, the Trump administration has already pledged about four billion dollars in December to the Global Vaccine Alliance in this fight against COVID. And I understand that's the focus of your upcoming meeting with President Biden. What are you asking him to do?
5: The United States uh, and the UK both have an incredibly proud record of supporting the COVAX Global Vaccine Alliance. So, together, uh, we contribute huge sums to ensuring that countries around the world that are less fortunate than ours have access to, to vaccines. And we'll be working to uh, to make sure that that happens. What I also want to see is uh, the the, U- the US and the UK working together to learn the lessons from the the pandemic and to build back better together? I'm uh, thrilled that President Biden uh, has also got a slogan, uh, "Build Back Better." I think well, I think I claim that yeah. uh, we used it first. Though so, to be truthful, I think we 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 nicked it from someone else before I started using it. But it's the right slogan, uh, Margaret. We've got to learn from this pandemic. We've got to learn about uh, how to. To share information, how to how to share uh, drugs properly, how to make sure we don't hoard things like uh, personal protective equipment, as you saw earlier on in the pandemic. We have got to make sure that we we are distributing vaccines. Uh, in the In the UK, we now have one of the fastest vaccine rollouts anywhere in the world, as as your viewers may perhaps know. Uh, that's uh, we've uh, I think. We've done almost 15 million vaccinations in, in, in our country. Almost, I think more than one in four adults has now had uh, a vaccination. Uh, that's, that's tremendously fast progress. But we want to make sure that we work with countries like, like the United States so that everybody gets a vaccination. There's no point in, uh, in great countries like the United States, uh, the UK, vaccinating our own populations if we don't ensure that everybody... Gets a So you're this asking is a the pandemic. US for
2: more money towards that?
5: The US has already been extremely generous, as you said yourself, and the UK is the second biggest uh, contributor to COVAX to and uh, to the global anti uh, virus, the, the, uh, the vaccination alliance uh, that uh, the Gavi organization uh, and we'll continue to do that.
2: I want to ask you about what the World Health Organization report actually constituted because the Biden administration yes. was clear. They have deep concerns about the investigation, about Chinese interference, and they are demanding that China hand over data about the early outbreak. Are you joining them in that call? Is China obscuring what happened?
5: One of the things we'll be uh, calling for in the, the G7, which uh, President Biden is going to be joining, uh, I'm glad to say, is the uh, is a global coordination in uh, getting to the bottom of what happens with these diseases. So when you have a zoonotic uh, plague, uh, like coronavirus, we need to know exactly how it happened. Now, indeed, if it's, if it's zoonotic, if it really originated uh, from uh, human contact with uh, the animal kingdom. That's what is asserted, but we need to know exactly what happened. Was it in a, in a wet market? Did it come from uh, the bats? Were the bats associated with the, the pangolins? All these questions are now matters of uh, speculation. Uh, we need to see the data. We need to see all the evidence. So I I thoroughly support what President Biden has said about that.
2: British government scientists revealed on Friday that that particular strain, B117, which was first detected in your country, is likely increased to uh, a greater rate of hospitalization and death, perhaps as much as 40 to 60 percent more. You're under a lot of political pressure to open your schools. Are you certain you can do that next month?
5: we're proceeding in a cautious way and what you've got at the moment in the UK is the virus uh, coming down you're perfectly correct in what you say about the the B117 variant uh, though bear in mind that the reason we've been able to isolate this and other variants is that the UK conducts far more genomic uh, analysis than any other country. Of all the genomic testing that's going on in the world, we do like 47 percent here in the UK. So we're pretty good at spotting these uh, mutations of these viruses and and tracking their movement through our populations. Uh, It's absolutely true that that this one spreads faster. But what you're now seeing is thanks to the efforts of the British people, uh, the, the lockdown, plus possibly uh, the, uh, the effects of the vaccine, we're going to start seeing the, uh, the rates coming down uh, more sharply. And uh, they're falling at the moment. Uh, we want to be in a position where, where we can begin to open up. So what I've said, Margaret, is that on March the 8th, we want schools to go back if we possibly can. I'm not saying that uh, we're uh, announcing that today because we're going to be saying a lot more on the 22nd of this month. We'll be making clear our roadmap. And I think what people want to see, and this may be the same in the U.S. as well, is clarity about the way forward and taking steps to unlock that you don't then have to reverse. Exactly, because, that, because I think, is what is that's so That's what I want, to, pr- what I want to press you on, though, people. Mr.
2: Prime Minister, because when you announced you were shutting schools in January, and you would really prioritize for a long time keeping open schools, when you said they've got to shut down in January, you said they were because they might be vectors of transmission for the community. If you've got this strain circulating, and you believe schools are vectors of transmission, how can you reopen them?
5: THE ANSWER TO to THAT IS THAT YOU NEED TO SEE WHAT THE uh, EFFECT OF THE VACCINATION PROGRAM IS IN REMOVING LIKELY uh, VICTIMS, uh, VICTIMS IN THE the SENSE OF uh, PEOPLE WHO SUFFER EITHER DEATH OR SERIOUS DISEASE, uh, WHAT THE SUCCESS OF THE VACCINATION PROGRAM HAS IN REMOVING THOSE PEOPLE FROM THE PATH OF THE the DISEASE AND uh, ALSO WHAT'S HAPPENING WITH the, THE RATE OF INFECTION. It's now coming down, Margaret, very considerably uh, in our country. What we don't know is quite how fast it's going to be coming down in the next couple of weeks.
2: One of the vaccines that you are using uh, is from UK pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca. And there are questions now about how effective it can be against some of the mutant strains, particularly uh, the one first detected in South Africa. Are you concerned you're putting a flawed vaccine into the arms of your constituents? And what's your backup plan?
5: We have great confidence in all the vaccinations that we're using and uh, we have no reason to think that they are uh, ineffective against any uh, variation of the any any variant, uh, any new variant of the of the virus in protecting people, Margaret, against a serious illness and, and death. And that's, the, that's a very important consideration for us. One of the uh, features of uh, Oxford AstraZeneca that has been recently confirmed by the scientists is that it, it reduces transmission uh, between people as well. There's a, there's a 67% reduction in transmission as a result of the use of these vaccinations.
2: Back in April, you were hospitalized with COVID. You were quite ill. You were in the ICU. Did you ever think you wouldn't make it?
5: I think in common with many people in my country, I'm very grateful to the fantastic work of the uh, of the NHS and uh, they did an outstanding job and they continue to do an outstanding job. I think one of the one of the one of the features of this of this uh, illness is that uh, you don't. As as you undergo it, it's it's possible you don't realise quite what a what a state you're in. I think that is one of the features of it because your your oxygen levels go down uh, in a way that perhaps the patient doesn't necessarily uh, detect themselves.
2: And that's why it's so serious. I want to ask you about uh, U.S. U.K. relations. You have not yet met President Biden, though you're about to have this virtual meeting. You did have a phone call. Back in 2019, he referred to you, as I'm sure you know, as the physical and emotional clone of Donald Trump. Are you concerned you're going to start off on the wrong foot?
5: I've had, uh, I think, already two long uh, and very good conversations with the president. And we had a really good exchange, particularly about uh, climate change and uh, what he wants to do. We want to build back better together. Uh, particularly in the run-up to the COP summit in November in Glasgow uh, this year, which we hoped will be uh, a physical incarnation of the the leaders of of the world, uh, to agree what we hope will be a fantastic thing, which is everybody to get to uh, net zero carbon emissions by 2050, but also making pledges uh, on the way what they're going to do to get there uh, by 2030
2: on the issue of Ireland, you may have some difference here. President Biden doesn't want you to put that peace agreement in Northern Ireland at risk at all, has made clear that border needs to stay open and you need to adhere to that EU-UK agreement from December. Can you commit and reassure the U.S. Congress and the U.S. President that you will do so in all circumstances? Stick to that agreement.
5: You bet. This is fundamental for us. The, uh, the, the Anglo-Irish agreement, the peace agreement, the Good Friday process, the, uh, the Belfast uh, agreement, these, uh, these agreements are absolutely crucial. And
2: the Northern uh, Ireland protocol.
5: our uh, continued stability, uh, con- our continued stability and, uh, and, and success as a, as a UK and our success. I have a great relationship uh, with, uh, with, with, D- with Dublin, with Micheál Martin, uh, the Irish Taoiseach, and we're going to work together to do some great things. And, and Margaret, being no doubt, we don't want to do anything to jeopardise the achievements uh, of the, the Northern Irish uh, peace process. So it's absolutely vital.
2: And the Northern Ireland Protocol specifically, you will adhere to that open border.
5: We want to make sure that uh, there's a free movement north south, free movement east west. And, uh, and that we, we guarantee uh, the rights of, uh, of the people of Northern Ireland, of course.
2: All right. Mr. Prime Minister, I'm told we are at time. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. No.
5: <laughs> Margaret, thank you so much. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us.
1: Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy.
6: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
2: Welcome back to Face the Nation. We turn now to the director of the Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Rochelle Walensky. She joins us from Boston this morning. You heard the British Prime Minister give himself a little bit of wiggle room there on committing to reopening schools in his country next month, particularly given this new research on B117, that highly contagious strain that now is found to have higher hospitalization and death risk associated with it. Should areas of this country where there is B117 still have in person classes?
6: There are over a thousand B one one seven cases that we have documented in this country um, in over thirty in thirty-nine states. Um, we know now that or we estimate now that about four percent of disease in this country is related to B one one seven, and we have projections that it may be the dominant strain by the end of March. That said, the amount of disease in school is very much related to the amount of disease that's in the community. So the work that we do to decrease the amount of disease in our community um, is is that much more benefit to getting our schools reopened.
2: But you said on Friday at a press conference that 90 percent of the country's schools are in areas with high levels of transmission. Don't those schools risk becoming vectors of transmission?
6: so what we know from the from the literature from the scientific literature is that most disease transmission does not happen in the walls of the school it comes in from the community there's very limited um, transmission between students between students and staff um, really mostly between staff to staff when there are breaches in mask wearing so what we're really advocating for now is um, working to get our in, especially in the in the high areas of transmission the red zones you just talked about getting our cader K- five kids back in a hybrid mode with universal mask wearing and six feet of distancing. So those
2: protocols still apply with these new variants in places like South Florida or California, where there is a high degree of these mutant strains?
6: Indeed, you know, it is the same disease. Um, we we uh, prevent it in the same ways. Our mitigation strategies work whether it's a B117 variant versus um, a wild type variant. Um, the B117 variant may be less forgiving when we have breaches in these mitigation strategies, but the mitigation strategies are indeed the same.
2: The CDC data that we looked at from last year shows that the proportion of mental health-related visits for children has increased nearly 24% over the year prior. But mental health isn't mentioned in those guidelines that you released this week.
6: We are absolutely worried about all of the collateral damage that we are going to see. Um, not just mental health, of course, mental health, but not just mental health, loss of educational milestones, um, food insecurity that has happened with our schools being closed, which is why we were really prescriptive with this guidance to to provide uh, states and, and localities with the um, information that they need so that they can open safely. But on the mental
2: health portion of it, are you going to issue new guidance? Guidelines on how to deal with that?
6: Well, we will, we will be certainly watching that space and, and uh, we'll be looking to our mental health colleagues and, and looking to where and when guidelines are required, necessary. When you were last with us, it was just right before the
2: inauguration. Um, and at that time, you predicted the country would be at close to half a million deaths by mid-February. That's almost exactly where we are right now. What do you think the trajectory is from this point?
6: You know, I think so much depends on how we as a country behave. Um, We still have um, 100,000 cases a day. We still have somewhere between 1,500 and 3,500 deaths per day. And yet we see some communities relaxing some of their mitigation strategies. We are nowhere out of the woods. And as you note, if we relax these mitigation strategies with increasing transmissible variants out there, we could be in a much more difficult spot. So what I would say, is now is the time to not let up our guard, now is the time to double down, still with a hundred thousand cases a day, still with over two and a half times the cases we had over the summer. So
2: you're talking about places like Montana and Iowa where they have lifted masking requirements. You say that's a
6: mistake. Indeed. Indeed. I I think we're not out of the woods yet. We need to get our kids back to school. We need to get um, our communities uh, back to some um, normal functioning before we can start thinking about letting up our mitigation strategies.
2: I want to ask what you've changed since you've taken the job at the CDC. Because when you were with us last, you talked about the need to scale up surveillance and sequencing to basically figure out where these new variants
6: are and to do it quickly. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of change that's happened at the CDC. I would invite my colleagues there to, to comment as well. What I will tell you is, first of all, we've released the school guidance, which has been long in coming. We've really wanted to get that out, and now we have done so. In terms of the variants specifically, um, we have uh, much more sequencing happening. Um, we have collaborated with departments of public health. Each state is now giving us uh, uh, strains for, for sequencing. We get over 700 of, 750 of those per week. We have collaborated with... Um, with commercial labs with the intent of sequencing over uh, uh, 6,000 viruses per week, as well as collaborations with universities with the intent of really, really scaling up our sequencing so we can have a really good sense of how many variants are out there and where they're located. But how
2: much are we actually getting a glimpse of right now? Where are we? 5 percent? 10 percent?
6: Um, We are uh, in the beginning of of January, early January, we were sequencing about 250 a week. We're now over 4,000 a week with the intent and and we're doing more and more every week.
2: So uh, it, it sounds like you think there's still work to do to figure out where virus is spreading in this country.
6: Absolutely. We have the intent to do more and more sequences every week. Um, we need resources in order to do so, but, but the scale-up has been over tenfold just in the three weeks we've been there.
2: When do you think uh, the pharmaceutical companies that have developed the vaccine we have now need to switch over production to deal with these new variants?
6: What we know now is the the major variant that's circulating here in the United States is B117, that's the one that came from the UK. Um, we know in la- in the lab that the current vaccines actually work quite well against B117, that's according to laboratory data. We don't have any data here yet to demonstrate otherwise, although we're watching it extraordinarily carefully. In the meantime, the pharmaceutical companies are adjusting their manufacturing, their their science to to, um, to Directly uh, neutralize the B117 variant. And so we are both watching what's happening on the epidemiology with those who have been vaccinated, but we're not waiting for that. We're doing the, um, the science to scale up different vaccines in case we either need bivalent vaccines, that is a vaccine that has two different strains, or booster vaccines. Both are happening.
2: Both are happening. Doctor, thank you for your time. We want to go now to the president and CEO of pharmacy chain, Rite Aid. That's Hayward Donegan. She joins us from Tampa, Florida this morning. Good morning to you.
7: Good morning, how are you?
2: I'm well, as of this week, uh, your stores and other uh, pharmacy chains are now receiving directly from the federal government doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, According to your press release, you'll get 100 doses initially for stores in California, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Philly, and New York City. What difference does it make to get the vaccine directly?
7: Well, it's long awaited. We're super excited to be getting these doses directly so that we just have the ability to protect more people in a meaningful way. So we have been doing over 140,000 shots so far with state governments and local municipalities. So we were in the whole process much earlier than we ever expected, even with the states. But it's just exciting to be picked in these states as one of two pharmacies that will be distributing the federally allocated doses.
2: So with those newly allocated doses, I mean, how many vaccinations do you think you'll be able to conduct each week? And how many did you do this week, for example?
7: Yeah, so we're doing, um, we we got 116,000 doses last week. And so those are already in process. We are administering, as you said, 100 doses per store per week there's 1160 stores and we anticipate and are hopeful that that volume will go up so we're doing you know essentially 20 shots a day per store
2: So can you explain what the registration system will look like? Because I'm sure you know, I know plenty of people, particularly older people, who really struggle trying to figure out which website to go to at the state, at the county level, which store to go to. How are you going to streamline that part of the process?
7: Well, um, at this point, it's all still being handled by the state and local jurisdictions. And if you go to RiteAid.com backslash COVID-19, and then you go into the vaccine eligibility section. We have a daily update by state, by jurisdiction, that shows you exactly which link to click on to register for a vaccine and, and updates you on the status of RiteAid's participation. We do not currently schedule in the stores, so you have to go through the state or local jurisdictions websites, and that's who we'll point you to. And then you can pick a Rite Aid, or you can pick a Walmart, or you can pick a Publix, or whoever's Mm -hmm. been uh, named and allocated doses to register with. And of course, the supply continues to be not able to meet up the demand. Mm -hmm. So we still have very long waiting lists, um, but we're hoping that in the April, May timeframe, when you hear about all these new doses becoming available, at some point, we're hoping that you can go directly to us and register on our scheduling system. But for now, you need to go through that link. And and we feel as if this is a great source of information for people who are very confused.
2: So you said back in January, you you said it yourself an Investor Conference, that all this is is pretty confusing because of how states are breaking this down. Um, How would you advise the Biden administration to, to change it? Should the private sector be taking more of a role in every part of this?
7: I think the private sector is more experienced with these scheduling tools and registration tools, which are... Very much stressed right now, and so you know, I always think that the private sector who build these tools and and scale these tools in the cloud uh, from a technology perspective would be the best people to help in this regard, as well as with the call centers. And I know that the governors are doing a wonderful job as best they can. Um, for example, the the governor of New Jersey putting their call, own call centers together and trying to do as much of this as they can. But the demand is so high that I do think the private sector can play a role here. Mm -hmm. We ourselves have built um, our own scheduling tool. Uh,
2: Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, who leads the Health Equity Task Force for the Biden White House, has talked about trying to get vaccines into socially vulnerable areas. On this program back in November, CVS's CEO said they could put mobile trucks and vans uh, into underserved communities. Do you have plans to do things like that?
7: We can really do anything and we are prepared to do anything and everything. We are staffing clinics today. I think the federal government has done a really good job in the prior administration and the current administration with the testing sites, really focusing on socially vulnerable areas and making sure that we provide as much coverage there as we can. They're doing the same thing right now in terms of making sure that where they pick our stores, for example, is is ensuring adequate coverage for Uh, both geography and socially vulnerable communities. So there's an ongoing dialogue Mm -hmm. um, daily about this. And as we roll both testing and vaccines out, they're very focused as are we on making sure that we cover those communities.
2: Have you seen a drop off in testing because the COVID tracking project says there's been a 20% drop in testing since President Biden was
7: inaugurated? There has been. Our um, assumption is that it's because the holidays are over. And we are assuming that there might be a pickup um, after the Super Bowl. But right now, we think it's just a, people are a bit weary. They're probably taking a little break after Christmas and Thanksgiving or the holidays. And so we also have seen those uh, tests drop off. But we have just rolled out uh, to 1,200 stores free testing because we anticipate that mm-hmm. testing will continue to be a, a very important tool in the arsenal of Americans.
2: All right. Uh, Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. We turn now to former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He sits on the board of Pfizer as well as Illumina, and he joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, I know you agree with the the CEO of Rite Aid there that the private sector should take a, a more direct role in more of this process. Do you see the Biden administration eventually getting there?
8: Well, I think they're doing it right now, the Biden administration. I think they're taking an all of the above approach in terms of trying to push this out and create more access sites. You know, the one recommendation I would make is that I wouldn't I wouldn't devote as much federal resources to developing these mass vaccination sites. I think people who can go online, register, drive to Dodger Stadium, wait in line, take a half a day off from work to get vaccinated, those are people who could be serviced by Walmart, CVS, Rite Aid. I would be taking the federal resources and the state resources and creating more bespoke solutions that can be used in some of the hard-to-reach environments, some of the underserved communities, whether you can move mobile vans into those communities, try to work through community groups, local providers, church groups, community health centers, to try to get harder-to-reach populations vaccinated. That's a very difficult effort. It's expensive. It's a bespoke effort. It's a hands-on effort. I'd be marshalling the federal resources towards that kind of a mission and letting Walmart work off the easy demand and Rite Aid.
2: The Biden administration purchased 200 million more doses. That gives them a stockpile, about 600 eventually, once it comes off the production line. Uh, You heard me talk with the the CDC director and I asked her when production should shift to those treatments of new variants. She said that is happening now. Uh, What can you tell us about where we stand in terms of being ready to protect against those new variants?
8: Well, look, I think we have plenty of time to get this right for the fall and have vaccine boosters that could cover these new variants. The development work is going on right now. So all the companies are developing new variant vaccines, including Pfizer, the company I'm on the board of. The question is, when do you start shifting over your manufacturing? And I think you're going to need to probably make that decision at some point in July, August at the latest. And you might not shift over all your manufacturing. You might shift some of your manufacturing towards those new variant vaccines, because remember, they won't be fully through clinical trials yet. So you don't want to throw all your your eggs into that basket, but you do want to create some supply that you'll have it on hand come the fall if you need those vaccines. So I think that's about the point where you're going to make that decision. The time to starting the manufacturing process and actually getting finished vaccine Mm -hmm. off the line is about two months. So if you start manufacturing in July, you'll start getting vaccine off the line in time for the fall. You
2: heard the British prime minister stand by his decision to continue vaccinating his populace with AstraZeneca's vaccine, even though it has shown itself to not be as effective in early trials against the South African variant. Um, The WHO is sticking with it, too. Is that a mistake?
8: Well, I think if we're going to do that, we need a plan B. I understand why they want to do this. They've manufactured a lot of this vaccine. It's cheap. It's accessible. Um, It could be put into low and middle income countries because of the handling requirements. It doesn't require complicated cold chain storage. But if you're putting a vaccine into those markets that we know does not cover B1351, the South African variant, very well, if at all, um, you have the risk that you could select for that variant in those markets. And so you need a plan B on what vaccine you're going to deploy to those regions if, in fact, p B1351 becomes prevalent in those regions after you vaccinate with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And the problem is you may foreclose the one vaccine that's the most likely candidate in those markets, which is the J&J vaccine, because it has very similar storage requirements. You would want to use that vaccine. But in fact, the AstraZeneca vaccine is very immunogenic against the vaccine vector. So what they're using to deliver the COVID gene sequence is a chimpanzee adenovirus And it turns out that that adenovirus that they're using is very immunogenic. It creates antibodies that can attack other adenoviruses, including perhaps, and we don't know this for sure, but perhaps the J&J vaccine. So you might foreclose the opportunity to use that vaccine in these markets, which means you need another plan B, which might be the mRNA vaccines, like the vaccine that Pfizer produces, the company I'm on the board of. But those vaccines are harder to handle in those markets because they require more complicated cold chain storage. So we need to work this out right now.
2: That's a pretty big warning that you're making right now. Um, I, I, I well, I think,
8: they, I think they need to have a plan for that, yeah.
2: Uh, I, I also want to ask you about these comments. They were pretty sharp, I thought, from the, from the Biden administration's National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. He said yesterday that uh, the Biden administration has deep concern about the World Health Organization's investigation, Chinese interference in it. He demanded handing over data. That's exactly what the Trump administration demanded as well. Um, what is it that... China still has here that we need to know?
8: A lot of data. Well, first of all, they have antibody testing on the people who worked in that Wuhan lab. They didn't make that available. So you'd want to know if they have antibodies to the coronavirus. That would be an indication that maybe they they got infected. Now, those antibodies will, will wane over time, but you at least want to look at that data. We want to see sequencing data on retained samples from people who were admitted to the hospital in October and November with viral syndromes that looked like COVID to see if this infection was spreading earlier and try mm-hmm. to get closer to the source of the initial outbreak. That data is certainly available. The Chinese have that. Yeah. So there's a lot of data that was not made available.
2: Dr. Gottlieb, thank you as always for your time. We'll be back in a moment.
9: Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this.
2: The Senate impeachment trial put on display some harrowing new sights and sounds from January 6th as protesters stormed the Capitol and made their way into the Senate chamber. We asked our senior national correspondent, Mark Strassman, to take a look at those images.
3: January 6th, American democracy's day of infamy. Watching this montage of mayhem.
1: USA! USA! USA!
3: It's spasms of menace and malice. Stop us here! Stop us here! This is America?
1: We were normal, good, law-abiding citizens, and you guys did this to us!
3: We learned a lot this week about how appalling many moments were. Pro-Trump rioters bludgeoned police. Dragged them down flights of stairs. Looked like a medieval battle scene. At one point, I got tased. People were yelling out, you know, we got one, we got one. More clear than ever, the mob of hunters almost got elected leaders. Nancy! Where are you, Nancy? Here you see Senator Mitt Romney abruptly reversing course away from rioters now inside the Capitol. With gallows set up outside. The Secret Service whisked away Vice President Mike Pence and his family. An aide carried what appeared to be one of the three nuclear footballs. Rioters came within 100 feet of them. Representatives and staff cowered and cried. Videos showed Chuck Schumer and other senators evacuate the Senate floor. The newly complete narrative laid out this week, its arc of thuggish behavior, seditious acts and close calls was a gut punch to our sense of self and to senators watching the presentation.
2: I mean, I had tears in my eyes. You heard every single breath, every single sigh.
3: But after an acquittal on the impeachment charge, there's worry about a lingering threat. What this video says most of all, no one wants to see a sequel.
4: If we pretend this didn't happen, or worse, if we let it go unanswered, Who's to say it won't happen again? For
3: Face the Nation, I'm Mark Strassman.
2: That's it for us today, thank you for watching. We did offer invitations to over two dozen Senate Republicans to join us today, no one accepted. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Colorado Democratic Congressman and Impeachment Manager Joe Neguse, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky, right Aid President and CEO Hayward Donegan and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also broadcast on our digital network, CBSN.
10: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladaris. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.